Our scripture reading today comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John is writing this letter to people he loves. And in our passage today, he begins by addressing them in this fatherly, affectionate tone by calling them, my little children. Now, that's not demeaning, like he's treating them as though they're juvenile or something. He's addressing them as my little children because he loves them and he wants them to enjoy the good life that God has promised them in Christ. The question is, how are they supposed to take hold of this good life? And maybe the more pertinent question for us is, how do we take hold of the good life today? It's a good question. It's being asked by a lot of people in our world today, not just followers of Jesus who are reading 1 John together. It's being asked by a lot of people. There's a lot of conversation in the category of human flourishing goes as far back as Aristotle, uh, 350 years before the teaching of Jesus, before Jesus came around, the philosophers were wrestling around with this idea of what constituted the good life. For us who read scripture, we know that this conversation goes all the way back to the very beginning, and we can see this in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3. There's a psychological study that came out a little more recently than that in 2019 that was put together by some Harvard researchers, and they talk about the idea of human flourishing across five different cultures. They developed what they called the Flourish Index. The idea of the Flourish Index was giving a a way to measure human flourishing in all of these different cultures, and they do it by looking at six different categories, happiness and life satisfaction, physical and mental health, meaning and purpose, character and virtue, close social relationships, and financial material stability. Now, no one's going to disagree with those categories being involved in a life of flourishing. Those are all really well and good, and they do indeed give us a window into the way that these different cultures understand flourishing and where they place value on these different identifiers. But notice who's at the center of every one of those categories, namely me. And in the world that we live in, which is largely absent of being connected to a greater story, that means that it becomes my burden to define what each of us, what I mean and what each of us mean by each of those categories. All of these categories are defined and start with me, the human. I am at the center of this entire story as a human being. But our text today is going to show us a totally different approach to human flourishing. John's showing us that you can't define human flourishing by starting with humanity. 
You can't define human flourishing by starting with humanity. John already said in chapter 1 in his letter here that he wants us to live and be people who have a deep and joy-filled relationship with God. And this, this happens as we enter into fellowship with God through Christ. This is how we enter into life. And in a sense, what he's saying is he wants them to have the good life. He is advocating for maximized human flourishing. And he says the only way to have the good life and that maximized vision of human flourishing is to allow God to define what is right and true, to come into relationship with God through Christ, and then to do what Jesus commands. See, Christ City, you can't have human flourishing by starting with humanity. So we need to take a long, hard look at the person and work of Jesus. It's basically our outline today. It just comes straight out of the text. In order to live the good life, in order to have maximized human flourishing, we need to biblically define what is true and right. We need to know who Jesus is. And we need to do what Jesus commands. We need to biblically define what is true and right. We need to know who Jesus is, and then we need to do what Jesus commands. So first, how do we biblically define what is true and right? Okay, here's what I mean. Look, look at the text, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Right? And you say, whoa, 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 John. I thought we're talking about human flourishing and the good life, and we're talking about Jesus, and here you come in, and you're already talking about sin. Sin's one of those negative words, John. We don't like to use that kind of negativity around our family and our household and with my friends. We're all about flourishing. We don't like the negativity that the notion of sin brings into the conversation. So why are you starting with sin? It's a great question. It's an honest question, and it's the right question to ask. Let me ask you another question. Do we even agree on what sin is anymore? The answer is no. Here's what I think, really basically. I think, biblically speaking, sinning is any action or attitude that is rebellious toward what God has revealed as true and right. I'll, I'll say it again. Sinning is any action or attitude that is rebellious toward what God has revealed as true and right. And if we study Genesis 3 and then we study the entirety of Scripture, we're going to see that at the heart of sin, we have this desire to redefine truth. We hear what God says is true, but we want to redefine it. At the heart of sin, we, we see what God says is moral, what is good and right, and we want to redefine morality. And with that then comes a desire to redefine who we are as human beings. We want to redefine truth, we want to redefine morality, and we want to redefine our identity. But John says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I'm writing these things to you so that you won't live with any action or attitude that is contrary to what God has revealed as true and right. John is saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you won't seek to redefine what is true and right about what it means to be human. Listen, because if the point of origin for all of our conversations around human flourishing is built upon the foundation of a sinful redefinition of what it is to, to understand what is true and right in this world about what it means to be human, we will never be able to take hold of the true good life. 
right? We can't move the goalposts here and then call it a win. If we start with humanity at the center, we will always end up in the wrong place. But if we understand that we must start our journey here toward the good life and human flourishing with God at the center, with what he says is good and right, we will flourish. We don't get to make up our own truth. Christ City, this is what we need to be mindful of because the world we live in says we get to decide what is true and right. But we don't get to define true and right. We have it in the scriptures. So I use a fitness tracker to tell me how I'm doing with exercise. I get to set the inputs of what is measured and how it's measured and what is then defined as success. So the easiest way for me to feel good about myself at the end of the day with regard to my activity is to just dial that expectation back a little bit. I just move the goalposts, right? I get to the end of the day, I'm sitting on the couch eating something I shouldn't be eating, and I look at my fitness tracker, and it says I am at 75% of my goal for activity for the day. I'm not really feeling good about this, and so what will I do? Well, if I redefine the standard and just dial that back a little bit, hey, look, I met my goal. I'll just change the rules, and I'll get a win. The easiest way to feel like we are not walking in sin, to feel like we are not living outside of God's definition of what is true and right, the easiest way to rid ourselves of the pressure is to redefine the entire concept, to alter the inputs, to move the goalposts, to change the rules, and then just sit back and go, see, we're good. It can't be considered sin if we are the ones who redefine what sin is. And for our culture who doesn't see God's word as the objective standard of truth, and and for churches who are and maybe have walked off the pages of the Bible, it's exactly what they're doing. We don't consider those passages of Scripture to be authoritative. We don't think that's the best way to read it in light of who we are as human beings in the 21st century. We will redefine the truth, and then we will feel good about what we're doing. You can't made to be feel uh, you, you can't be made to feel sinful if you're the one who's setting the definition and the standard of what is right and true. Scholar uh, Karen Jobes. She said, John's intent with respect to the topic of sin is clear. He writes to warn his readers against sinning in the many ways that sinning is possible, including a denial of sin. And if you just think back to the passage that we were in last week, and if you weren't a participant of that, you can just look back a few verses before in your Bible. It says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, it says, if we, have, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And then we move into our passage today. It says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And so you're saying, hey, hey, John, we know you're an apostle. We know that you're the disciple whom Jesus loved, but pick a lane, bro. If we say we have not sinned, 
And there is no sin. We deceive ourselves and we're a liar. But, but if we do sin, we can confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. He's not contradicting himself. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. See, here's the problem with talking about the good life from a human perspective of human flourishing. All we need to do to define flourishing is to deny the scriptures as true and right, to move the goalposts so we can get that win. And in our fallenness and in our sinfulness, the first thing we do in that conversation is we move God out. We redefine aspects of our humanity and then we call it flourishing when we say that it's making us happy. See, we can't define human flourishing by starting with humanity. We define human flourishing by starting with what God has revealed to us is, a, is true and right. We start with human flourishing when we put God at the center. One scholar said, all human claims about the nature of the good life then must be measured against the moral vision that is articulated in Scripture. Okay, That is to say... God defines what is good. He defines in his word what is true and right. We don't get to make up our own truth. In order to live the good life, in order to truly flourish and find that maximized human flourishing as human beings, we need to biblically define what is true and right. And then secondly, we need to know who Jesus is. Look at this with me. Look at verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Christ City, this is the good news of the gospel, of the good life, of human flourishing. Right on one hand, we know when we've already looked at this, if we deny sin altogether, the truth is not in us. We deceive ourselves and we call God a liar. That is absolutely true. On the other hand, John is not saying in this passage, look, you'll never measure up. You, you just don't have it. So you might as well just go for it. Do whatever you want. He's contradicting here both of those errors. He's saying, look, we have a goal. We seek to honor God by living in obedience to his commandments. We don't deny the nature of sin altogether, and we don't say that however we live, it doesn't matter. He's saying there's something to look at here. John's writing these things to us that we may not sin, but since he knows we have and we will, he lays out the big picture and he points us to Jesus. In order to flourish as human beings, we need to know who Jesus is and we need to trust in what he has done. So what does this text tell us about Jesus? Look look at the second half of verse 1. It says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The only people who would try and say that they are without sin are people who have redefined the category in an unbiblical way. So it says, when you sin, you need to know Jesus Christ is your advocate and Jesus Christ is the righteous one. Jesus is our advocate. That means he's the one who comes alongside us to help us. Jesus is the righteous one. right? In his godness, He is righteous by definition. He is God. 
And in his humanity, in his incarnation, in, he is the righteous one in the sense that he was without sin. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that he was tempted and tried as we are, yet was without sin. And see, he is the only one who is at the very same time righteously uh, revealed to us as God, but also the righteous one who lived a perfect human life. He is both God and man. 1 Peter 3.18 says, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Okay, he, he suffered or he died once for sin. This is, this is where the exchange was made. This is what allows us to hold the confidence of knowing that we have an eternal advocate in Jesus. Commentator David Jackman, he said, it is because his sinless life was laid down for us as the means by which our forgiveness was obtained that he can righteously plead his sacrifice before the righteous Father on behalf of us, the unrighteous. Now, you've got to get the picture right in your mind. It's not like Jesus is standing before the Father as our righteous advocate, right? He's standing before the Father as my righteous advocate. And he's just going, please don't condemn Brett. Just don't look at how bad he is. He's having a bad day. All right, he's had a bad week. Okay, Father, I understand. He's had a couple bad years. But I'm sure he can do better. That's not how Jesus advocates for us before the Father. His advocacy says, Brett is guilty but I am righteous and I died for him and he is mine. See, he is our advocate. Look at the second half of verse one again. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This propitiation is a sacrifice that removes wrath. Some translations call it an atoning sacrifice. This means that on the cross, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, stepped into our place and he absorbed the wrath of God that was meant for us. This means that on the cross, Jesus, who was innocent of all charges and sinless before God, took upon himself the judgment we deserved. He bore the weight of our sin and disobedience in our place. And the pathway to human flourishing then is not a redefinition of sin or a cultivation of our own truth. It's to realize that we are lost and broken, but that in his great love, our loving heavenly father sent Jesus Christ, our righteous advocate to die in our place, to make a way for our salvation. David Jackman again said the glory of the gospel is that we have an advocate who pleads for mercy on the ground of his own righteous action when he died the death that we deserve to die. He is our advocate. He is the righteous one and he is the propitiation for our sins. And one more thing here. Look at verse 2 again. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You go, the sins of the whole world. This means God's saving work is not just for one people or one ethnicity to the exclusion of all of the others, but that Christ's work is effective for the whole world. 
That is to say, Jesus' saving work and God's vision of human flourishing is not limited in any way and that it is inclusive of all people in all places at all times, but that this good life of human flourishing can only be accessed through Jesus. That is what this is saying. It is an inclusive gospel for the whole world, but this salvation is exclusive and only found in Jesus. In order to live the good life, in order to truly flourish as human beings, we need to, number one, biblically define what is true and right. We need to take the revelation of God to us in Scripture seriously. Number two, we need to know who Jesus is. He is our advocate. He is the righteous one. He died to save us. And then third, we need to do what Jesus commands. We need to do what Jesus commands. There are three separate statements on this in verses 3 through 6 as as John tries to get his point across, and he tries to get that point buried deep down in our hearts. Look at verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The second statement, verse 4 and 5. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And then the third little statement here, he says, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Do you see this? All three of the, of the uh, commands in this sense of, of living this out, doing what Jesus commands, all of them are grounded in knowing him. We know him if we keep his commandments. We know him if we, we keep his word. We know him if we walk in the same way he has walked. This is the fruit in our lives that proves we are united with him. So do you now see why it's so important that I make the case that human flourishing cannot start with humanity and our own definitions of true and right? True flourishing has Christ at the center and relationship with Christ at the center. Do you see why it's so important that I make the case that we don't get to redefine what is true and right and why we need a biblical definition of sin? right? Because it comes down to our joy-filled and and love-driven obedience to his commands. John's just doubling down here on what he's communicated to us all about the teaching of Jesus in his gospel. In the gospel of John chapter 14, verse 15, it says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Just listen to the words of Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is the same as verse three in our text, now in John's voice. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. See, John is a good disciple of Jesus. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he also has the courage and the wherewithal to call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved because he knows the teaching of Jesus because he was with him. And here he is sharing it to his little children, unpacking it for them in greater degree that they might flourish as human beings. Verses 4 and 5 and 6 in our text are basically the same as John chapter 15, verses 8 to 11. Look at this. He says, By this my Father is glorified. Again, the words of Jesus. 
that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, there's a proving of our discipleship with Jesus. There's a proving that, we, that says that we are apprenticing ourselves to Jesus. And the proof is when we keep his commandments, when we keep his word, and when we follow in his example of obedience. Just as Jesus followed in the obedience to his father, we follow in obedience to Jesus. And then do you see what he says? He says, these things, right? He says, I'm writing to you these things. John says, keeping his commandments, keeping his word, and abiding in the love of Jesus by following in his example. These things, he says, I've spoken to you. This is what Jesus has said in John chapter 15, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus says, I want you to abide in my love so that my joy might be in you and that your joy would be full. Christ City, I'm just asking you right now, do you want the pathway to a joy-filled life of human flourishing? And you should all just be nodding your heads right now. You do. I know you do. And I know our neighbors do. I know our coworkers do. I know our families do. Come to Jesus. This is on offer to anyone who will come. He says, come to me. In order to live the good life, in order to truly flourish as human beings, we need to biblically define what is true and right. We need to know who Jesus is and walk in relationship with him. We need to do what he commands. I want to tell you something that I think is practical and vital to living this out, okay? Jesus' obedience led him to the cross so that our obedience can lead us to joy and new life. But Jesus was never compelled by fear. His obedience was always compelled by love. You won't come to keeping Jesus' commandments and to keeping his word and to following his example unless your goal becomes abiding in his love more than just avoiding sin. We aren't only talking here about the absence of sin. That's not the simple goal. We're talking about the presence of transforming love. Right? You don't live into the flourishing life that God has planned for you by becoming more and more sin conscious. You get there by becoming more and more Christ conscious. You don't get to true human flourishing by, by turning in on yourself, sort of navel-gazing and complaining about your sin or the way that you've been sinned against. You move toward God's good life by keeping your eyes turned up, keeping your eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of your faith, Jesus. You move toward the good life by walking in obedience and in forgiveness. And I'll tell you, the gospel's power enough, powerful enough for both. Robert Murray McShane said, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. This is how you keep your eyes on him. This is how you don't just curve in on yourself and think, I'm horrible. I'm the worst. You go, maybe, but Christ is a better savior than that. You turn your eyes upward to him.
Thomas Chalmers also talked about this. He said, The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. The idea here is that what you have set your affections on may not be in line with the will of God. And you can't just by virtue of discipline and sheer willpower just put that to death all the time. What you have to do is you have to expel that with the power of a new affection. It's a displacement. So you don't become sin conscious in an increasing way. You become Christ conscious. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. See, we are worshipers by nature. We are people who desire, and we are going to set our affections on something. And I'm just telling you, don't set your affections on becoming sinless in some weird way. Set your affections on Jesus, and you'll walk in obedience. You don't seek to maintain your own vision of human flourishing in this way and just sort of take your own ideas of what the good life might look like and then just try and add obedience to Jesus on top of that. I'm telling you, it's a complete swap out. It's a total worldview shift. And you allow the Christ consciousness of the new life you've received in him, you allow your new joy of abiding in his love to expel the old affection and replace it with a new one. See, Jesus, uh, sorry, sorry, John writes this message to us that we may not sin, he says. But then do you look at the methodology of how he says you'd go about that? Come into relationship with Jesus and obey his commands and allow his joy to fill you too. Let me pray. Father, you are so good to us. I stand amazed at the wonder of your mercy and your grace toward us in Christ. And I pray right now for every person watching this video, every person listening to this audio podcast, wherever they are and whatever they're doing, that you would wrap them in your spirit in power. Lord, I pray for a tangible sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit with us in this moment because we desperately need you to reorient our hearts. Oh Lord, I ask you, I say, come Holy Spirit, minister to us in power today. Get into our hearts in those dark areas and expel those old affections with the glorious new one as we pursue Jesus. Fill us with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're with your house church, you're getting ready to celebrate communion. Communion is a wonderful picture of what I have just talked about. Jesus Christ is our advocate, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins. That means that upon the cross, all of the wrath that sat upon your shoulders for your sin and disobedience was cast upon him, that Christ took once and for all, all of our sin and shame. He bore that upon his body and it killed him but it was the pleasure of God to put Christ in our place that we might walk in relationship with him. Upon the cross, Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed, and therefore we celebrate this in the way that Christ taught us to celebrate this with the bread and the wine. The bread, the broken body of Christ, the wine, his shed blood. For it is the only way that we can be assured that we are forgiven. It's to anchor all of our hope in this. And it's to celebrate with the bread and wine the reality of the good news of the life that God has welcomed us into in Christ, that he wants the best for us, that he wants us to flourish. 
So as you celebrate as a group right now, do so with repentance. Do so asking God to reveal to you where there's brokenness in relationships and where there's pain and sorrow that you might go and seek reconciliation and come to the table of grace. God has provided everything we need.